the Siege of New Hampshire series by Mick Rowland. Book 5, Critical Spring. Chapter 19, Collection and Roots. 500 ounces of silver? Martin's euphoria came crashing down. Are you sure you heard that right? I asked Walter several times, said Judy. It sounded kind of high. Martin flailed his arms. It is high. What's the good of finding the medicine we need, only to find out it's so freaking expensive that no one can buy it? Martin paced back and forth in front of Judy as they stood in the driveway. Uh, what about something else? Uh, what about ammo? We've got a bunch of that when we captured badass. Judy's eyes followed Martin as he paced. Well, Walter said he asked about ammo, but the person said it could only be 500 ounces of silver. Bah! Martin threw up his arms in frustration as he paced. He had been buying a little silver, here or there, before the outage. He wasn't convinced that silver would really become the substitute currency if the dollar should fail, yet he could see where it might. His cautious approach, only buying five or ten ounces at a time, when the spot price was unusually low, meant that he had only a few dozen ounces. Dustin and I have a few ounces we could give, offered Judy. I know, I gave them to you, snapped Martin. He stopped in his tracks and faced Judy. Look, I'm sorry about that. I'm just angry. I know you want to help, but my 42 and your 6 aren't even a tenth of what they're asking for. Might as well be a million dollars. It felt like a good time for a father-in-law shoulder hug, but he was not supposed to have direct contact with anyone from the house. The scratches on his face were still open in a few spots. The pause in his rant allowed Martin to actually look at Judy. Are you sure you're feeling okay? You look kind of pale. You've been keeping clear of the bedroom and everything, right? Of course. Well, I peek in sometimes. Mrs. Simmons is kind of holding her own. Mrs. Top is pretty strict about her separation rules. She had Dustin check my temperature and stuff. I don't have a fever or any open sores, so she doesn't think I got MRSA. She said my queasiness might be just stress and fatigue. Yeah, we've all been under a lot of stress lately, said Martin sympathetically. Um, Mrs. Judy, called Lucas from the window over the garage. Your radio is talking again. Uh, what button do I push? You don't push any buttons, Judy called up to the window. I'll be right up. She turned to Martin to murmur. A few days ago he left my transmitter on, on high power. That really drained the batteries. She hollered up to the window again. Lucas, you need to come down here and tend to your solar panels. They're in the shade again. She turned back to Martin. I'll see if Walter can find out anything else. Uh, you know, for, for options. Well, thanks. Martin's heart was not thankful. He continued to pace and mutter to himself. Why did the only Meropenum anyone had have to be so far away? West of Keene was a three or four day journey. One way. That's challenging enough. But the price? Uh, maybe I should have strained our budget and bought more silver. But silver hasn't really been becoming a currency. So would more silver really have been a good use of our resources? Who could have planned for something like this? Oh, 500 ounces? 
Mr. Simmons! Judy came running down the front steps. That was Walter. He's been calling around, asking people if they had any silver. He, he found some people who do. They're all meeting up at Town Hall in a few minutes. Martin turned and ran to the road. I'll, I'll tell the others you went to town, she shouted after Martin as he ran out of sight. Martin had to stop and lean on the town hall stair railing as he took deep, wheezing breaths. His right side hurt, his thighs ached, and felt like jelly. He was accustomed to working long days and walking many miles every day. Running all the way to town, however, was not a routine he had trained for. Ah, Simmons, Jeff Landers appeared in the front door. Ah, come on up. Ah, we got a nice little crowd gathered. D dust yourself off, though, first. Martin tried to hide his deep breaths as he dusted his pants off. Oh, sorry. I wiped out in some of the loose sand. <laughs> Judy just told me that Walter called around. Ah, yeah, he has. Word got around, too. Lots of people here, though not all of them have silver. Some just want to wish your wife well. The two men entered the upstairs meeting hall. A crowd of several dozen people all stopped talking, looked at Martin, then they all burst into talking at him. He couldn't make out a single word. Their tone was conciliatory. Hands pulled him closer to a table in the center of the room. On the table sat a few boxes and bags. My father gave me a set of silver eagles, said Denton. He pointed to a dark blue velvet bundle on the table. One on each birthday until I turned eighteen. Denton unfolded the velvet to reveal the coins. Oh, well, thanks, Denton. Martin wanted to decline a sentimental father-son gift, but Margaret needed the medicine. You know, what could he say? And I was just sure the world was going to go to hell in a handbasket with Y2K, said Mike Wilder. He pointed to a little gray cash box. So, I bought 50 ounces, you know, because the dollar is going to collapse. And my wife never let me forget what 500 bucks could have bought. He chuckled slightly. <laughs> More shoes is usually what she means. I got these two 10-ounce bars from my dad's estate, said Red Colliff. No one knew he had them in the safe deposit box. I had no clue what to do with them either. Yeah, I hope your wife gets better soon. Yeah, we miss her around the dairy. Yeah, Genevieve keeps looking for her. Oh, thanks, Red. Martin could feel a crack in his voice. Many people in the room had expressed their hopes for Margaret's recovery, even if they had no silver to give. Throughout the difficult winter, Margaret had touched many lives. I brought in my great-grandma's silverware, said Dave Stuba. It dates back to the late 1800s. I weighed it. Uh, there has to be like 15 pounds in there. That's like 240 ounces. Several people in the group cheered as Stupa opened the walnut-stained box on the table to reveal neat rows of spoons and forks. Jeff Landers picked up one of the forks and studied the marks on the underside of the handle. Ah, I hate to, uh... It's a really generous offer, Dave, uh, but, um... What? Ah, uh, this is silver plate. It's probably pewter with a thin layer of silver. Landers said apologetically. Yeah, my wife's an antique, you know. Always going to shops and estate sales and all. She tells me about these things. Silverware hasn't been really made of silver for hundreds of years. Stuba seemed to shrink to two inches. A woman cradling an ornate soup tureen in her arms addressed Landers. Uh, and this? 
Landers offered a consoling smile. Ah, my wife has two of those in the attic. Yard sales. Nice piece. English. Late Victorian. Silver plate over copper, though. Oh, the woman melted back into the crowd. Well, these are pure silver. Andrew Haddock set a black metal box on the table. Got a hundred Canadian maple leaves in here. He pulled back the cover to reveal four rows of coins in horizontal columns. Some of the people nearest the box reacted like a game show audience with oohs and ahs. I bought them back in the early 90s as an investment. Paid like seven bucks each back then. I should have sold them back in 2011, when silver was up to $38, but no. I held on to them, thinking the price would go higher. Price tanked instead. Still, they're worth twice what I paid. At least, they were when the grid went down. Who knows anymore, eh? Not much use for them. Might as well buy some medicine with them, right? Oh, thanks, Andrew. Martin put his hand on Andrew's shoulder. And I wanted to give you this, said a woman's voice behind Martin. He turned to see Joni Bain. She wore a tight sweater and looked noticeably clean and groomed for a woman working in a metal shop. She held out a clear plastic box that rattled as it moved. Five ounces of silver nuggets, not sterling, 99% pure, she said. I was going to use them to cast some jewelry a couple of years ago, uh, but never got around to it. I wanted you to have it. She placed the box in Martin's hand such that she held his hands in hers. When she didn't let go immediately, Martin glanced up. Her eyes seemed to be apologizing for her smile. Martin could feel his heart sink. Was old trouble resurfacing? He had far too much on his plate already. It's just gratitude he told himself. Well, let's see, Robert interrupted mercifully. He scribbled on his clipboard. With Drew's hundred, now Mrs. Bain's five, that totals two hundred and forty-one ounces. Not to sound all business-like, but uh, that's well short of our goal of five hundred. Who's next? The people around the table looked at each other and behind them to see who would step up next. A man near the stage stepped forward reluctantly, In his hand, he held a small mason jar full of coins. I wasn't sure if these would count, he held out his jar. I've been collecting junk silver over the years. Back in the 70s, there was more in circulation. Nowadays, it's pretty rare to come across a pre-64 quarter or dime. When I did, they'd go in the jar. They're 90% silver. I wasn't sure if that counted. Well, we don't know for sure, said Martin. They only said ounces of silver. Maybe this is still good, too. There was something tragic about the man's expression that moved Martin to accept the gift graciously. Yeah, I really appreciate this. My wife died of beaver fever back in January, said the man. It came on fast. Not much we could do. I thought that maybe if this could save your wife... The man turned away and pushed back into the crowd. How much do you have there? Robert asked Martin. He pointed with his pencil to the note on the lid of the jar. It says two and a half pounds, said Martin. He peered between the heads and shoulders of people around the table, but he couldn't see the man. Drew did mental math. Well, that would be 40 ounces. 90% of that would be 36 ounces of silver. Well, with that, it makes 277. 
Still far short of our goal, said Robert. Uh, anyone else? Again, the ring of people around the table turned to see who might be volunteering behind them. The people in the middle circle did the same. The people at the outer edges of the crowd turned to see bare walls. No one else? asked Robert. The room was silent. Martin's spirits darkened. Oh, maybe you could buy half of the box? offered Drew. No, said Martin. For the three antibiotics to work, they all have to be there in the right proportions. Maybe they'll take 277 and call it done, said someone in the back. Four days of hiking, only to find out the answer is no, said Red. Ah, oh, that's a bad plan. Now, yeah, Walter could radio them and ask if they'd accept 277, said Landers. Walter said we have to have our answer ready before noon tomorrow, said Martin. After that, the radio link goes down. No time to renegotiate. They could still say no. Ah, uh, still, uh, we could ask. Someone turned to look at the room's double doors. Others followed their gaze. Soon, everyone was looking at one of Clyde's sons standing in the open doorway, a deer rifle cradled in the crook of his arm. The son's wife joined him. She held a pump 12-gauge. They took two side steps to the left. Clyde's other son and his wife, both with long guns, took up positions on the right side of the door. No one spoke. Clyde trudged up the wooden stairs to take his position between his sons. His white hair was uncombed. He stood with his hands in the deep pockets of his long coat. At Clyde's nod, the two sons stepped forward, their wives walking in outboard wingman position, creating a wedge that easily parted the crowd. Clyde strode through the middle with heavy footsteps on the wooden floor. Jake says you're short, Clyde spoke to Martin as if he were the only person in the room. Um, yes, we collected 277. I need 500. Huh. Clyde shifted his eyes from side to side, studying the crowd with a critical frown. He started to pull his right hand out of his coat pocket. Dave Stuba, Chief Berg, already had their sidearms unsnapped and their hands on the grips. Several other residents moved their hands toward hip holsters or pockets. Clyde's family pulled their weapons a little higher. Clyde paused to look over the crowd with a scolding look. He turned his gaze back to Martin. I don't believe in charity. He pulled two paper-wrapped rolls from his pocket and set them on the table. A man's got to work for what he has. There's no free rides in life. He pulled three more rolls from his other pocket. Two hundred and fifty ounces of silver. This ain't charity. I'm buying me one of them wood gas maker things. You're gonna make me one big enough for my old Massey Ferguson 65. Gas engine? 175 cubic inch four-cylinder. Martin's mind spun with a dozen lines of thought. He suddenly had the outrageous price for the medicine. He would also have a big construction project for which he had no time. The back acre had to be tilled and planted. He still had to get to a point west of Keene very soon. Connie said Margaret was holding her own, but not getting much of any food. She couldn't hang on indefinitely. Do we have a deal, or what? Clyde squinted at Martin. Well, yes, Clyde, we do. Martin held out his hand for Clyde to shake. 
Clyde looked from Martin's hand to his face and back, as if unsure what to do. Business deal, said Martin. We seal it with a handshake, like men of our word. Martin pushed his hand a little closer. Clyde took Martin's hand and gave it two strong shakes. Men of our word, Clyde turned toward the door. I want to be plowing in three weeks, he said over his shoulder as he strode out with his family entourage in tow. I'll have someone over tomorrow uh, to take measurements, Martin called out. The Grady group thumped down the wooden stairs. The front door shut with a bang before anyone spoke. I never thought I'd see him back in this hall, said Lenders. Uh, you're going to trust Clyde to keep his word? Well, he paid in advance, said Martin. The pressure's on me now to keep my word. <laughs> Clyde, of all people, ponied up the rest? Mike scratched his head. Yeah, what's up with that? Just doing business, said Martin. Thoughts swirled like black flies. What would they need to locate to make another large gasifier? Maybe a 50-gallon propane tank would be good for the hopper. Where could they find one of those? When would he find time to build anything when he had to get the medicine for Margaret? Hey, Martin suddenly realized that he could leave immediately. I have enough now to go buy that medicine. Ha, woohoo! Martin jumped with a fist pumped into the air. I gotta get home and packed. I need to be on that island in, in four days. He began to try and stack the bags and boxes in a jar quickly. Oh, this stuff is really heavy, Martin said to no one in particular. Yeah, a little over thirty-one pounds, I figure, said Drew. You're gonna carry all that and your gear over a hundred miles in four days? asked Mike. Well, I have to. Martin bounced slightly with all the silver cradled in his arms, getting a feel for the weight. When the grid went down, he had walked home fifty miles, carrying his twenty-pound pack. It got quite heavy by the end of each day. He only made fifteen or so miles each day. Now he was facing twenty-five or, or more miles each day. Thirty additional pounds on top of his necessary cross-country gear would get very heavy. His first thought was to travel in the Hendricks truck. That would be fast. Charles Tyler and the truck, however, were in Hampton Harbor. They wouldn't be back for several days. Then Martin remembered traveling to and from Manchester in Robert's trap. Uh, Robert, Martin turned. Uh, could we take your trap, please? It would be so much faster and better for carrying this load. Please, I'll, I'll help you rebuild that wall of your old barn. Oh, oh and I, I'll pull up all that knotweed that's growing along your fence row. And, and now hold on, cautioned Robert. Don't go selling your soul. I'd love to help you out, but we can't take the trap that far. It's a road rig. We'd have to go through a dozen towns or more. They'll have roadblocks, like Nutfield does. Some of them might not even be particularly civil and try to take everything we've got. There could be road bandits, too. Martin frowned. He had already become enamored with the idea of taking the trap. Then Red's words came to mind. Genevieve. Oh, well, then what if we follow power lines? We did that when we were herding Genevieve back to the dairy. Most power line cuts have paths and, and usually avoid settled areas. Ah, the trap's not built for trails, objected Robert. Strictly a road machine. Martin would have waved his arms to deflect the objection, but they were full of bags and boxes. Well, never mind about the trap, then. What if we just ride horses? 
we could make thirty miles a day. Easy. What do you say? I'll still pull all that knotweed and help with your barn. Robert's frown indicated turning gears within. Martin wanted to keep promising to do projects for Robert, but he also didn't want to interrupt his train of thought. Well, that could work, said Robert. But are there power line cuts between here and there? Uh, Chief, Martin said, you've got those USGS maps in your office, right? Sure, we use them for searches, mostly. Got most of southern New Hampshire. Ah, well, then let's go see, said Jeff. Chief Berg headed for the door, but quickened his pace to stay ahead of the crowd. They all thundered down the wooden steps, like school kids being let out on the last day of classes before summer. Martin, burdened with his thirty-pound load, arrived last. Only a dozen people could fit into Berg's cramped little office. Hey now, said Berg, easy with those maps. Uh, don't tear them. I'm not going to be able to get any replacements, you know. The salient quadrants covered Berg's desk. Fingers followed dotted lines to the edges. New maps were laid on top of the old. Yeah, there are power line cuts that go up to the river, said Mike. You can get these lines just north of town. Follow them down past Nutfield. Uh, you don't want to go anywhere near the center of Nutfield anyhow. Then up this way, and along up there. Uh, you need to do a little road travel just south of the airport, but then you can take that freeway bridge across the Merrimack. Martin leaned over to study the maps. Power lines led due west. They crossed rivers that horses might not. They would need to plan ways around those barriers. One set of lines traveled west with only a few zigs and zags. Ah, uh, that looks like the power lines head down past Melfit, said Jeff. Then a long stretch of nothing before you get to Ringe. I don't like to look all that swamp and pond, said Robert. Horses don't do swamps well. That power line goes over all kinds of swamps and ponds. Martin squinted as he studied the topographic map. Well, there's another line that starts just west of Jaffrey and heads west. What if we take these back roads here and go up kind of northwest-ish and pick up that spur line? Uh, lots of houses along some of those roads. Robert tapped his finger on two clusters of little black dots along the lines of the roads. Could be nothing. Could be trouble, too. Well, horses aren't quiet, but they're fast, you said. Martin reminded Robert of his own words. Maybe we gallop past those spots. You done much riding? asked Robert. Martin straightened up and blinked. The sum of his experience in the saddle had been a week of a ranch-style summer camp when he was twelve, and an anniversary trail ride gift for Margaret a few years ago. Um, I've done some riding, uh, yeah. Well, good, because a trip like this will be a workout, said Robert. We'd better have a third person along, too, for watches when we camp. I'm not taking Jen. Someone's got to watch over the animals. Oh, uh, well, we can't spare any riders from the patrols, said Berg. Uh, we barely got enough riders to make one daily loop around the town borders. Uh, you got someone at your house, Martin? I think so. Martin was imagining Dustin as a good candidate. He was young, healthy, and always up for an adventure. Okay, then, said Robert. 
Bring your rider to my house in an hour. We'll get everyone set up. Martin wanted to run home, but his legs refused. He wasn't even sure his legs would hold up walking. His armful of silver increased in weight with each dozen yards. He certainly wasn't going to hike over a hundred miles with such a load. As he walked into his front yard, Lucas was arranging his solar cells to best capture the sunbeams between tree shadows. "'Lucas!' Martin called out. "'Could you run inside and get Dustin for me?' Martin knew that he wasn't scheduled for a patrol until the evening. Martin had to sit on the rock wall to rest both his arms and his legs. He would have to refigure the patrol rotations to work around the two of them being gone for a week. Hey, Dad. What are you doing out here? What's all that stuff? It's a gift from God, said Martin. People were chipping in silver they had. Even that old grump Clyde showed up with enough to get us over the five hundred we need. Oh, really? Well, that's amazing. Uh, But don't you have to be out in the Connecticut River in just a few days? Yes, we do. Uh. We? Yeah, I talked Robert into letting us ride his horses out there. That should make the trip doable. I know you haven't ridden before, but it's not that hard. Martin stopped. Dustin's face did not show the eagerness for adventure that Martin anticipated. What? Well, it's just that Judy's taken sick now. She's been in bed ever since you left. Oh, I thought she looked kind of pale. She said Connie didn't think it was MRSA, though. Oh, it's not the usual fever, either, said Dustin. She's actually not running a fever, but it's acting like a stomach bug. So, as much as I'd really like to go with you, I really don't want to leave Judy right now. Martin admired his son's dedication. It spoke well for the future of their marriage. Yet he still needed to find a travel companion for the mission. Carlos seemed competent enough but Martin didn't like taking him away from Anna and Lucas. Martin shook his head at the thought of taking Andy. With the scrapes on his face, Martin wasn't sure Andy was all that steady on his feet, let alone a horse. That left Trevor, young, strong, and not pre-committed to someone else's well-being. Robert, this is Trevor. I don't think you two have been formally introduced, said Martin. The two shook hands and nodded. Well, let's get started, shall we? said Robert. He started walking toward the paddock near the road. Grazing quietly were three horses. Have you done any riding, Trevor? Uh, no, sir. But I really like watching that magnificent seven, though. (laughs) I thought it'd be cool to ride horses. Oh, yeah, that was a great movie, said Robert. Charles Bronson, Yule Brenner, Steve McQueen. Who are they? Were they in the movie? I like Denzel Washington as Chisholm. A totally cool dude. Robert looked over at Martin with a puzzled tilt to his head. That's the uh, 2015 remake, Martin said. Remake? Uh, You mean there's another one? asked Trevor. Never mind, said Robert. We're here to get you guys acquainted with your mounts. Martin, you'll be on Jasmine. She likes you. I'll be on Peaches, uh, mostly because she doesn't like you. Why? asked Martin. I never did anything to... Yeah, it doesn't matter. Sometimes a horse just decides not to like someone. You can bribe your way back into Grace. Yeah, but we don't have time for that. Trevor, the Obeon Diva. Robert pointed to a horse along the fence with splotchy red and white coloring. 
she's a paint. She? squeaked Trevor. Uh, don't you got no stallions? I was thinking I'd be riding high on some honkin' big black stallion named Brutus or Panther or something. Um, no, no stallions. Dave is a good horse for you. The first step is to introduce yourself. Walk up slowly until you're five or six feet away. Hold out a loose fist so she can come and sniff the back of your hand. Yeah, go on, walk over. Robert muttered out of the side of his mouth to Barton. Yeah, Diva loves everyone. She's super mild and will follow Peaches and Jasmine around like a puppy. Uh, she's been great for giving riding lessons to little kids. Uh, Trevor won't have to control her much. Uh, that'll help. Hey, exclaimed Trevor. Yeah, she likes me. She's, yeah, man, that is way too much slobber. Now, stand alongside her and pat her neck and head. Talk nice. You'll be partners for many days. Jasmine walked over and nuzzled Martin so hard he nearly lost his balance. No need for introductions. Now take her lead, Robert said to Trevor. Take that rope hanging from her nose. Yeah, that one. Lead her over to the stables with us. We'll get saddled up. Robert walked beside Trevor as they led their horses toward the stable. The paint breed made up many of the wild Mustang herds in the Old West. Native Americans prized paints as the best hunting and war horses. Really? Trevor looked Diva in the face. War horse, huh? Ah, cool. Robert winked at Martin. Back in the paddock, Robert had the horses arranged in a loose triangle so he could demonstrate how to mount. He explained about checking that the cinch was snug so the saddle wouldn't shift around. He had just put them on so he knew they were tight, but it was a good cowboy rule to always check. So, Trevor, tennis shoes are okay for now, but do you have something with a heel? Uh, you mean like work boots? If that's what you got, said Robert. You need something with a heel to keep your feet positioned in the stirrup. Smooth-soled shoe is prone to slipping through the stirrup at the worst possible times. You'll get dragged along, hanging by one leg. Trevor nodded thoughtfully. Yeah, I'm wearing my work boots. Okay, face your horse like this. Hold the reins in your left hand near the mane. Put your foot in the stirrup like this. Grab the right side pommel, that's this lumpy part up here on the saddle, with your right hand. Then give a little jump. Pull yourself up and swing your leg over. Robert was seated quickly. It took Martin a second hop to get up and over. As much as the lessons were as ostensibly for Trevor, Martin appreciated the refresher. On his third attempt, Trevor was in the saddle. These horses are western trained, so you'll hold both reins in your left hand. To turn your horse left, you move your hand left. She feels the reins on her right side of her neck and turns away from the pressure. To stop her, you pull back equally on both. Not hard. Yeah, you're not trying to choke her. She knows what to expect. To get her to go, you tap your heels into her ribs. Again, gently. It's a signal, not a gas pedal. Robert turned Peaches to start a slow walk around the paddock fence. Martin turned Jasmine to get her going. Diva followed along behind Jasmine, whether or not Trevor sent any signals. Don't just sit on the saddle, said Robert. Your butt'll be sore in less than a mile. A horse isn't a motorcycle. Keep a little tension in your legs so you're almost standing in the stirrups, knees bent. Get a feel for the rhythm of how she walks. Anticipate the ups and downs. 
She'll be happier that your butt isn't constantly crashing down on her back, and your butt will be happier too. And who doesn't want a happy butt, huh? Robert laughed at his own joke. Martin and Trevor didn't laugh. Martin wasn't getting a good sink with Jasmine's gait. He couldn't remember any of this from his week at summer camp. Robert took things up a notch by starting a light trot. Jasmine was eager to go faster. Martin found the trot rhythm easier to match. Oh, ow, ow, oh, oh, hey, ow, said Trevor. Diva trotted behind Jasmine. Keep your knees bent, son, said Robert. Almost like you're trying to stand up. Well, no, no, don't actually stand up. Just kind of ready to. Don't tense up your muscles. It makes you bounce more. Think beanbag. Be a beanbag. Yeah, yeah, that's better. Two more times around, and that'll have to be it for today. Martin and Trevor agreed to be packed for a week-long minimalist camping trip and at the stables before dawn the next day. How about that? A full chapter this time. I had to chuckle when I reread that latter part of this chapter. For the writing, I had called upon some personal experience, but not one of my better moments. Back when I was 12, my family lived in West Texas. I was a geeky suburban kid, more interested in model airplanes and Star Trek, uh, the original series. My favorite attire was a nylon windbreaker and deck shoes. My dad probably thought it would be good for his geeky son to attend a week of Dude Ranch out in the Big Bend area. You know, learn some manly cowboy skills. I wasn't keen on it. I mean, what's wrong with Star Trek? But 12-year-olds didn't have veto power back in those days, so I went to Dude Ranch. I'll spare you the inglorious lack of transformation and just focus on what was supposed to be the triumphal finale to the week of camp, the rodeo. After the showmanship of the staff, barrel riding, calf roping, and the like, the mission for all the campers was goat wrangling. We were to ride across a long corral as fast as possible, dismount with a burlap bag in hand, enter a small pen, catch a baby goat, and stuff it into the bag. The fastest time was the winner. When it was my turn, I was full of steely resolve. I rode my horse across that corral at a full gallop. I had pictured in my mind that I would stand on my left foot in the stirrup while the horse was still running, swing my right leg over, and dismount at a run, thereby saving precious seconds for the bagging and looking super cowboy cool in doing so. Even geeky suburban 12-year-olds want to look cowboy cool. As I stood up on my left leg and swung my right leg over, my left foot, in heelless deck shoes, slipped through the stirrup. I fell into it, up to my calf, and then fell off the side of my still-galloping horse. Since I wasn't a tall kid, my head didn't hit the ground, eh, too often, while I hung off the side of my horse. When the horse came to a stop, my leg slipped out of the stirrup. I landed on the ground in a heap. Mercifully, the horse had kicked up a big cloud of dust. I had hoped that no one had seen my not-very-cowboy dismount, eh, but they had. Miraculously, I still had the burlap bag in my hand. I ran to the pen, hopped over the fence, and chased the baby goat. I caught him, but every time I tried to stuff him into the bag, he had one leg or the other sticking straight out. I tried and tried, until the ranch hand sitting on the fence said, Never mind, kid. 
Time's up. I trudged over to the bleachers where my parents sat. My mom tried to say something nice like, Your horse ran very fast. My dad just sighed. It was a long and quiet ride back home. There wasn't much point in telling them all about my experiences at camp. They had seen the best part themselves. When I was writing Chapter 19 and the prospect of a neophyte writer, my experiences at Dude Ranch came back to mind. I'd like to give a shout-out to Sergeant Jeff, Luke, and especially Anne for buying me virtual coffees this past week. Glad to hear your winterizing projects are going well, Anne. Thanks, guys. I do appreciate your support. Thanks for listening and supporting this podcast.